All right. Romans chapter 10 this morning. We've made our way to the 10th chapter, just blazing our way through the book. We've been talking about how chapters 9 through 11 comprise a unit together. And in these chapters, Paul is dealing with a topic that's very dear to his heart because it comes to the topic of the nation of Israel and their current situation with regard to salvation and the gospel message. In these chapters, we have the current situation of that nation. It was current in Paul's day, 2,000 years ago, and now today it is still their current situation. God has turned his attention away from them as a nation and has temporarily rejected them as a people and has instead turned his attention towards the Gentiles. Throughout chapter 9, we discussed the sovereign plan of God as he deals with Israel, with the Jews. And we saw that it's because of God's sovereign plan that we know that he is not yet finished with Israel. He's not done with them. Paul stated in verse 6 of the last chapter, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In this statement, he set the tone for really the rest of these three chapters, stating two things that will prove to be vitally important for his discussion here. God's word has not failed, and not everyone who was born a descendant of Israel is part of the true nation of Israel. He then spent the next 23 verses going through and explaining this by showing that God's plan always included choosing some and not choosing others. For the, from the sons of Abraham, way back from the beginning, before there even was at Israel, from the sons of Abraham, he chose Isaac, but he did not choose Ishmael. From Isaac's sons, twin sons, he chose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. He chose Moses to lead his chosen nation, and he chose a man, Pharaoh, to demonstrate his power and wrath. He chooses some as vessels of mercy, as honorable vessels, and he chooses others as vessels of wrath, dishonorable vessels. And ultimately, as we saw at the end of the chapter last time, that God had planted out from the very beginning that he would reject the nation of Israel for a time, and then restore them again to himself. And during that time of rejection, that time when he is not focused on him, there will be many who will be destined for destruction, and only a remnant, a small portion of the whole, will be saved. Are there Jews being saved today? Yes. But by and large, as a nation, not very many of them. None of what is happening to them is a surprise. It was all planned out and prophesied from the Old Testament. We saw passages in Hosea and Isaiah that dealt with this. The foundation for where Paul is going with this argument here is laid out in the sovereign plan of God. Without a knowledge of what God's sovereign plan is with the nation, you cannot fully understand what condition they are in today. They are currently under the judgment of God. They are under His discipline. At the end of chapter 9, Paul switched gears in the last few verses and began to address another area that pertains to God's plan of salvation, and that is the area of man's responsibility. On the one hand, God has a sovereign plan, and God is the one who chooses those for salvation, and without Him acting upon Him, they would not come to Him in salvation. 
But on the other hand, there is another aspect to salvation and condemnation that is equally true. And that is the fact that man is responsible for his own sin. And he is responsible to respond to God's gift of justification by faith that comes through salvation or that results in salvation. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility is not an either-or situation. They are both clearly taught in Scripture. We read through chapter 9 and we saw that detailed for us. And now at the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, we will see the other. We need to keep in mind we do not have the luxury or the right to choose one perspective or the other. We don't have the right to like one of these aspects and dislike the other aspect and pick one to stand on and reject the other one. They are both taught in Scripture, and they are both right here in these three chapters for us to know and understand. We may have a hard time reconciling them. I have a hard time reconciling them. And that's okay because we will have all eternity to sort these things out and come to understand just exactly how these things work together. But for now, we simply need to submit ourselves to the Word of God and realize God is sovereignly in control of man's salvation. And man is responsible for putting his faith in the gospel that God has graciously offered to him. So when it comes to man's responsibility, how does sinful humanity become righteous before a holy God? How is that possible? And that is really the question that Paul has been dealing with throughout the entire book of Romans as we've been studying it. Paul has meticulously shown that righteousness comes from God. In order to be right before a holy God, you must come to him on his terms. And those terms are putting faith in what he has revealed, his plan of salvation. God has revealed to us that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There is no other way to be right before God rather than putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, when it comes to the nation of Israel, this faith, this belief, it became a stumbling stone to them, a stumbling block. Jesus Christ himself is the stumbling stone. And that's what we saw last time when we were at the end of chapter 9. The Messiah came to them, the one that they had been waiting for. But they had set their own expectations because they had interpreted the law based on their own system of works. And when their Messiah came, he wasn't what they had come to expect, what they had built up in their own minds. Instead of accepting him, instead of falling down and worshiping him when he came, they crucified him. He was offensive to their religion. He is still offensive to their religion. Try to tell a Jew today that Jesus is their Messiah and see what kind of response that you get. That's offensive to them, and that's not what they want to hear. The nation of Israel had taken what God had given them, his perfect law. There was nothing wrong with the law. It was perfect. But they had turned it into a system of worship that gave them what they thought of was a better chance at achieving righteousness on their own terms. When what God says is too hard or too undesirable for us, man wants to play God and change it. When, when, they, when man sees what God says and he says, you know what, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe that, I reject that. 
Man wants to change it. We inf- he, in fact, becomes God and makes the plan fit with his own expectations. We saw that through chapter 1. Mankind rejects the Creator. They see the creation, they reject the Creator and do things their own way. They worship and serve the creation other than the one who created it. They do that the same way with God's Word. They take His Word and they say, I don't like that, I don't, I'll reject it, so I'm going to come up with my own system. And this is exactly what Israel did. They tried their best to follow God, but they didn't do it in truth. They failed to do it with what was real, what was true, with knowledge. Chapter 9 showed us that sovereign plan of God that explained to us how any of the Jews at all, at any time, could be saved. How God could take a people that was so undeserving of salvation and make them his own. He could do it with Jews, but we also saw then that he could also do it with Gentiles. It is the fact that God has offered salvation to the Gentiles that brings us to this section of Romans in the first place. When dealing with Israel, how do the Gentiles fit in with God's plan, the plan of salvation? We saw at the end of chapter 9 that Gentiles came to receive righteousness through faith, the only way that it can be received. But the Jews did not respond in faith. What was the difference? Why did the Jews try to do it their own way while the Gentiles did it another way? Well, that's what we're going to see at the beginning here of Romans chapter 10. Paul's deals, Paul deals with this very subject. And what it comes down to is knowledge. It's all about the knowledge that leads to salvation. So in verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul begins with another heartfelt statement towards his kinmen, just like he did in chapter 9, and he'll do the same thing again when we get to chapter 11. The Jews here. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You see here, Paul's focus hasn't changed. He is still concerned for the Israelites, his kinsmen. Remember how chapter 9 began. Paul talking about how much sorrow he had for them, unceasing grief that he had for the Israelites. Here he says that he prays for their salvation. Chapter 11, we'll see that he starts off with a declaration that God has not rejected them. So again, these people are very much on the forefront of Paul's mind. He has great concern for them, as he should. And they continue to be the focus of these chapters. We haven't switched gears. We're still focusing on Israel here. And so he says he prays for their salvation. Now it's interesting to see that Paul, who just wrote about election who just told us about the sovereignty of God, who just wrote that God is the one who has mercy on whom he has mercy in accordance with his own will, his own desires. It's his sovereign choice. And now he tells us that he prays for their salvation. We talk about God's sovereignty and election, and people sometimes have the tendency to think, well, if that's the case, why bother? My prayers are irrelevant, aren't they? You just said God is going to do whatever He wants to do anyway. God is going to save whomever He wants to save. So whatever I do, witnessing, praying, maintaining a right testimony, that's not going to make any difference, right? That's sometimes the attitude that people have when we talk about these things, when we talk about God's election. That may be our attitude at times. 
And having those thoughts, I think there's a twofold effect that comes from that when you just even entertain that notion. First of all, we become apathetic. Well, God's got it handled. Why would I have to lift a finger? I'm not going to bother with witnessing or praying or even worrying about unbelievers. God's got it handled, so I just I leave all that up to Him. Do you think that's the point of what God wanted us to get out of chapter 9? Should that be the outcome of learning about the Almighty, Sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, that it's okay that if we become apathetic that we should be just lazy believers? I don't have to do anything. Who only serve when we get are guaranteed that something that we do is going to make a difference? That's not what I got out of chapter 9. I come away from Romans chapter 9 with a picture of an almighty, merciful God who looked down on the massive pool of unworthy, wretched humanity and He felt compassion. And He took some of them from that pool and He turned them into vessels that are worthy of His own glory. So that His compassion and His mercy might be known to all of the creation. And I think of that fact, knowing that I am one of those who owe my very life, my eternal salvation to Him and to His good pleasure, to that mercy that He showed me. And I can't help but feel grateful, but feel the need to praise Him for that change in my life and to want to serve Him obediently and submit myself to Him in every area of my life. And part of that service, a big part of that service, why we are still here in this world is a desire to see others saved. Experience the same life-changing salvation that we have come to know and to present the gospel to them and pray for them. But another part of what I think that thought process might affect is that we tend to just dismiss it. We look at these two things and we think, well, I don't see how these are reconciled together. We might say, I just can't believe that nothing I do matters and that nothing I do will make a difference. I don't think that's what God was telling us in chapter 9 at all. It can't be, because right here, Paul is saying that a person has the responsibility to believe, right? He's praying, to those, or he's praying for those to come to saving faith. And that's not really the correct way to think either, because we don't have the luxury of choosing between things that we have a hard time reconciling together. I don't see how they both fit. I don't see how God can be sovereignly choosing who is saved and who isn't, and offering salvation to anyone who believes. So I'm going to pick one or the other. You see, chapter 9 gave us insight into the very mind, the very plan of God, His perspective on salvation. But we need to be careful that our understanding of God's work doesn't become an obstacle to our own responsibility. What He has told us is our own responsibility. We need to have a passionate longing to see others come to salvation. There needs to be a burden on our hearts, just as there was a burden on Paul's heart for the Jews. When I go out into the world, I have no idea who's, who's elect, who God has chosen. I have no clue. So what do I do with that? Well, I guess I just sit back and let God figure it out. No, my responsibility is to share the gospel with everyone then to tell them of what God did for them and pray for them that they believe. That's my responsibility. We need to have a passionate longing to see others come to salvation. That needs to be the burden of our hearts. And that's where Paul's heart is 
What is their problem? The problem with the lost. It's not that they're not elect. No. Paul says it's that they have refused to believe. And that's what we're going to see through these verses here. They have chosen to reject God. And so Paul prays for their salvation, for them to repent and to return to the Lord. Now in verse 2, we get to see some of the insight into their lost condition and the obstacles that are in their way. He says in verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Paul wants to testify or to bear them witness. There is something about them that he wants to attest to. They have a zeal for God, he says. They are pursuing a right relationship with God. They want righteousness, or at least that's what they, that's what they claim. That's what they have in their perspective. They would claim that what they want more than anything is to please God and to seek after him, right? They were very zealous for him. And that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? What's the problem with that? They go about it the wrong way. You see, a lack of zealousness on the part of Israel wasn't the issue, or even a sense of apathy. That wasn't their problem. The Jews were a zealous people. They had a consuming passion toward the pursuit of what they thought was the proper way to worship and serve God. You still see that with them today to a certain extent, right? You certainly saw it back in Paul's day. In fact, Paul knows exactly what he's talking about here because Paul had firsthand knowledge of this. In Acts chapter 2, when Paul is giving his testimony before the assembled Jews, he calls them brethren and fathers and addresses them in the Hebrew dialect, which perks up their ears and gets their attention because here's this guy, he's talking to us in Hebrew. And he tells them in verse 3 of Acts chapter 22, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. Before his conversion, before he was saved, Paul was even then zealous for God. It showed in his life with the way that he had devoted himself even to Judaism. And he tells them this just like they were. He acknowledges that this is true in them as well. They are zealous for God. The Jews were willing to die at the hands of their enemies rather than defile themselves, rather than break the law. Because these things were an abomination to God. The hands of the Romans, the Jews often did die. They had a zeal even to death. Over in the book of Galatians, the first chapter of the book of Galatians, Paul gives a similar testimony there. He says in verse 14 of Galatians 1, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul was a zealot for Judaism, consumed with a passion for what he believed was the right way to serve and worship God. He was one of the most zealous defenders of Judaism in that day, trailblazing the way for the rest of them, right? He was going about throwing Christians in prison because he thought that's what God wanted him to do. So he knows exactly what he's talking about here when he says this about them. So what's the problem? Paul was on fire for God, wasn't he? 
It was zeal, but it was lacking a critical element. They lacked the knowledge that they needed. They were pursuing the goal in the wrong way. Desperately wanting to please God, they were ignorant when it came to what he really wanted them to do. What was his will for them? They didn't really know. They missed it. They didn't have that knowledge. What is, what is zeal without knowledge? It's misguided. It's like a, it's like a rocket, right? We have, we have the 4th of July coming up here soon, right? You look at a rocket. You look at the, the rockets that they send up into space. What do those have? They have guidance systems, right? You have this massive explosion, and it goes up in the air, and it goes somewhere, and they know where it's going. It's guided. The 4th of July, I let off a rocket. I don't know where that's going. I have no idea where that's going. It goes fast, but where it's going, no clue. It just goes. It's great to have that power, but it's got to be directed in the right place. You know, and this isn't only just true with the Jews, right? You see it all the time. You see it with other religions as well. There are many false religions out there that have followers that are so zealous. Many times their zealousness and devotion put Christians to shame. I met a man in London once several years ago. I went over there for a work trip and was talking to a guy and, and drove by a mosque. I mean, it's a beautiful structure, right? And he told me that he had worked on that mosque. He took a year off from work, unpaid, volunteered, to hand polish marble to mill this mosque. Not getting paid for that, not getting a paycheck from his job for that. He was willing to invest that time, that amount of service toward what he believed, sadly, falsely, was his own devotion to God. And yet you talk to many Christians in churches today, and you get hard, have a hard time getting people to show up once a week for doing things like serving in the nursery or cleaning their building or tearing, and, tearing down and setting up things, giving each week. And that's truly a shame, right? Where is the zeal that comes from true knowledge? We have the true knowledge. That should be how we as Christians operate all the time. In order to truly come into the righteousness that God provides, you must come in God's way. There has to be the knowledge of the truth. It's not my way. It's not your way. It's not even this or any other church's way. It's God's way to come to saving faith. And some people will complain about that. How do you know what God's way is? How do you know? How do you know that you have the true knowledge? Well, that part is easy. He's revealed it to us in his word. That's where we get our knowledge. That's where true knowledge comes from. That's the knowledge that Israel was missing because they didn't want to hear it. They rejected it and they stumbled over it. Paul goes on to expound on their lack of knowledge here in verse 3. He says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They didn't know about God's righteousness. That's what they lacked. That's the key element that they didn't have. So here's a people who claim that they're pursuing righteousness. They have a zeal for God, but they didn't know about God's righteousness. They didn't know what God's righteousness was. Why? Because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. What did we see in chapter 9? That they were pursuing their righteousness based on the law, by works. 
This was their own way of seeking righteousness, but it was never God's way of seeking righteousness. And being so wrapped up in their own way, they missed the real way. They missed God's way that he had provided righteousness through his son, through Jesus Christ. They didn't know this. They missed it completely. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, the writer uses the illustration of the law being a shadow, or elements of the law being a shadow of what was to come. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. In this context, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the sacrifices under the law. They could never take away sins. But really, the law was a shadow that showed what was to come. It revealed what was coming. And what was to come was the sacrifice that Christ was to make on the cross. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes in our study. But that meaning, like a shadow, the law was simply something that pointed to something else that had real substance. When you're outside, it's a nice sunny day outside. Well, there's a few clouds rolling in, but there's sun out there now. When you go outside, you see someone's shadow on the ground. You see your own shadow on the ground. Maybe, there's a, maybe you're on the side of a building and there's a corner up ahead and you see a shadow come out from behind that corner. What does that tell you? You see that shadow come out from behind the corner. What does that tell you? There's someone coming, right? You know that there's a person coming when you see that. The shadow reveals that there's a person who was about to come around the corner. The shadow isn't what's real. It's a reflection, an image, an indicator of that real thing, that real person. Well, the Jews took the law its commandments, its sacrifices, all that it was, and they held on to that, made it into something that it wasn't. It was never intended to be. They held on to the shadow of the law instead of the real thing. And when the real thing came, when Christ came, they rejected him for the shadow. Remember our theme verses once again. The theme of Romans, the verses that Paul took us, uh, that used to launch the discussion of this whole book in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation. That's what they were waiting for. That's what the shadow coming around the corner was bringing for them. A right relationship with God, salvation, and this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ provides. This is what Paul has been explaining for us in detail throughout the letter to the Romans. Because what does it reveal? The righteousness of God. How is it obtained? By faith and faith only. How could they miss this? The simple declaration of God. This is what Paul is dealing with here. Of course, this is what people are still missing today. Right? They aren't alone in that. 
The gospel is applicable to all, Jew and Gentile alike, and people today are still missing this knowledge. They are still living in ignorance of this. But is this an ignorant, or is this an innocent ignorance? Just something that they happen to miss. Oh, I just, I just missed it. That's not what Paul says here. It's one that they could have avoided. What does he say at the end of verse 3? They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This is a willful subjection, this or unwillful suggestion in this case. They missed it because they were not obedient. They refused to subject themselves to the righteousness that God had provided, had made available to them. This is a very important aspect to our salvation, to the gospel. The righteousness of God here is seen as something to subject yourself to, to be subjected to, to be placed under the authority of. The word for subject here is a military term, meaning to be placed under the proper authority or placed placed under the proper order. When we accept the gospel, we are willfully placing ourselves under the, the authority and the lordship of God, and we are subjecting ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ. When someone refuses the gospel, they are refusing to place themselves under that authority, under that headship. They are rejecting his authority. Having heard the truth, they are willfully refusing to submit themselves to God is really what it boils down to here. This is what the Jews were guilty of. They weren't ignorant of the fact that Jesus lived. They weren't ignorant of the fact of, of who he claimed to be. They had heard him teach plenty of times. But they refused to accept him, regardless of the signs that he did, regardless of the witnesses that attested to him, regardless of the teachings. To them, he was the stumbling stone. He was what didn't fit with their self-made righteous religion. Therefore, what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected the very God that they were supposedly trying to zealously pursue because they were striving after their own concept of righteousness. They were on their own path, but they weren't on the true path through knowledge. What is the true path? Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. This is like what we talked about before, about the law pointing to Christ, just like the shadow that we talked about. The idea of the end here, it's like the end of the road. It's like where the road leads, where something leads to. Or we could say, again, with the shadow example, it's the end of the shadow, right? If I go outside and I see my shadow on the, on the ground, and I look at it, and I follow it from, my, from the head all the way down to the toes, where is it going to point me to? Me, right? It leads to me. I can't step to the side and try to examine my shadow from the side, because what happens? It always points to me. I'm the end of the shadow. It always leads to the person or thing whose shadow it is. And that's the idea here. Christ is the end of the law. You follow the law to where God expected it to go, and it leads directly up to the Son, to Christ. The law was never a means of righteousness in itself. It was a way of God showing his perfect standard. 
And man realizing that he couldn't measure up to God's perfect standard must come to him in faith. He must believe in what God has revealed. What has God revealed? He's revealed the Messiah. Before it was the prophecy leading up to the Messiah, what the Jews were waiting for, what many of them are still waiting for, is a Messiah that fits the mold of their self-made righteousness. What they don't understand or what they refuse to understand is that their Messiah has already come. He has made provision for the righteousness that they are now that they claim to be so desperately pursuing, a pursuit that they make by trying to keep the law, and that's not going to get it done. Christ was able to do what the law never could. I want to take a look at a few verses that we've already seen in Romans, but kind of leading us up to this point. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. We've talked about the law at different points through our study in Romans. And we looked at this verse last time. We've seen it many times, so I don't mind showing it to you again. Romans chapter 3, look down at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here we see that the law was never intended to justify anyone. No flesh. The law brought the knowledge of sin. It never did bring justification. God's righteousness. It didn't bring that. It showed God's righteousness, but it didn't bring God's righteousness to them. And then he goes on in the next two verses to talk about how it comes through faith. God's righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Skip ahead two chapters. Look at chapter 5, the very end of the chapter. Down in verse 20. We see again here, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why the law? He says, so that transgression would increase. How does an increase in transgressions make a person more righteous? It doesn't. Sin doesn't make you righteous. Sin shows you that you need a Savior. The very fact that sacrifices were built into the law really shows, was an indication, should have been a dead giveaway that keeping the law could never make you righteous. Why? Right? You have the law. I keep it perfectly. Well, built into the law, there are sacrifices. What are the sacrifices for? They're for when I sin. You mean to tell me that keeping the law always showed that sin was a part of it? That there would be sin in your life? Yes. Because I have sacrifices that I have to perform for the sins that I do. What are sins? Breaking of the law. I don't keep the law perfectly. That's why there are sacrifices in the law. So the very idea of breaking the law was built right into it. There was never an expectation that it even could be kept perfectly. Skip ahead to chapter 7. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. This was the section we were were talking about sanctification here. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You see here, the relationship to the law through Christ, we were made to die to the law. 
right? A person that was under the law, the Jews who were subjected to the law, through Christ, they come to salvation, they died to the law, right? They were no longer under its authority. Look at verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So what happened when a person died to the law? They were released from it, right? You die to something, you're released from it. You die, right? I mean, you get summoned to jury duty and you die. Do they expect you to show up? Well, they might because they don't know that you're dead. But when they find that out, no, you're out of jury duty, right? You have a legal obligation to go to it. But if you died, they don't expect you to go. You're released from that obligation. So anyone who was under the law, who believed in the gospel, died to the law, and the law no longer applies. Now, again, this is sanctification we're talking about. That's for believers. But before, we're talking about unbelievers. We're talking about the law leading to righteousness, or people thinking the law leading to righteousness. We'll skip ahead to to chapter 8, and we'll see this tie together. Look at verse 3 of Romans 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There needed to be freedom from the bondage of the obligation to the law, because the law brought condemnation to everyone that was under it. What was necessary was the gift of righteousness that God provided. He didn't set aside the law, but He fulfilled the law in His Son, and therefore being baptized into His Son at at faith when we are justified, all the requirements of the law that were fulfilled by Christ are fulfilled in us, in those who believe. That is how God has declared believers to be righteous. That is how he justifies us. What the law required was fulfilled in us through the Son. It's done. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. When we look at what God's standard of righteousness is, we don't need to work to measure up to God's standard of righteousness. We simply need to look to the Son. And believe in Him. Jesus Christ is what the law was always leading to. He is the end, the finish line. That's what the Jews were so desperately missing. What anyone who was trying to work for their salvation is missing, what you need to do is look to Christ. Place your faith in Him, in what He has already done. Instead, people are trying to do it on their own. They're too proud to bow down to the holy, almighty God and submit themselves to Him. Who is He the end of the law for? To whom does this apply? It says, to everyone who believes. A phrase that is both broad in scope and narrow in scope at the same time. It's broad because it applies to everyone, Jew or Gentile. Anyone can have this righteousness. None are excluded from this. But it's narrow because there's a condition here. Which, narrow, which narrows it down tremendously. It's available to everyone who believes. They must believe in Christ's work on the cross. It's such a simple thing, and yet there are so many that are lost 
because of this. They will not believe. They will not place their faith in the gospel. Anyone can be saved. Anyone that can have the righteousness of God, but they must first believe. Any single person on this planet that has ever lived, if they placed their faith in the truth of what God has revealed for salvation, they obtained the righteousness of God. Abraham got it. We saw back in Romans chapter 4, by believing what God promised. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We get it by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and only in Jesus Christ, because it is only through him that salvation comes. We come now to verses 5 through 8. Here Paul will assemble some more quotes from the Old Testament. He's quoted several times already through the Old Testament, showing his Jewish readers some of these things that had come uh, even from before. These are ones that show that righteousness is found by believing, by faith, specifically in the person and work of Christ. He's still talking about man's responsibility here. Man is responsible for believing, for having faith. Now, We talk about faith. We mention faith. Faith by itself is not enough. It must be faith in Christ, right? You have to be very careful when you talk about faith, when you talk to people. Jews have faith. Muslims have faith. Atheists have faith. But they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Once again, that's that misguided rocket that we talked about before. Zeal without knowledge, back up in verse 2. Their zeal is a result of their misguided faith, which is because they don't have the proper knowledge. So we need to be careful when we talk to people of faith or talk about people of faith, right? Sometimes you meet people and they say, oh, I'm a person of faith. Oh, you're, you're a believer. Well, believer in something, but what are they a believer in? What have they put their faith in? It must be faith in the revelation that God has given that salvation comes through his son. So that's where he's going with these quotes. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now, this is referring to what it says in Leviticus 18, verse 5. And that verse says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. The righteousness of the law is summed up in three words. Do and live. But there's a problem with that. What's the problem? All right, if I do the law, then I'll be righteous, I'll live. At first, it doesn't sound hard, but you have to understand that that phrase means that in order for that to work, you must do the law perfectly. If you obligate yourself to the law, then you are obligated to keep it perfectly, without fail. That's the point of the law. That's what was being said back in Leviticus and why Paul is bringing it up here. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes to rebuke the Galatians because some of them are going back to the law. The Judaizers had come in to influence the church. And if you're not familiar with the Judaizers, they were those that claimed to be Christians, but would come in and say, well, you have faith in Christ, but you also have to keep these aspects of the law, certain aspects of the law as well as faith in Christ. So the Judaizers were coming in and they were saying that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. You needed faith in Christ and you needed to be circumcised. 
And therefore, saying that it was still necessary to keep these parts of the law, Paul tells them in Galatians 5.3, again, or, And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. The point being that if you put yourself under any part of the law, if you are trying to obtain righteousness through the law on any one point, then you are obligating yourself to the whole law perfectly every single day of your life. Only then would you ever be righteous under the law. But that's an impossibility. No one could keep it. It was an impossible condition given to show the world that it was impossible to please God on our own and that we needed His help, His mercy. Therefore, obtaining this kind of righteousness can't happen. And that's what Paul is getting across with this reference here to Moses. He's saying that anyone who tries to live by the law at all is under obligation to keep it perfectly. And that's what the Jews had gotten themselves into. In fact, that's what they had kept themselves in. That was the system that they were keeping themselves under. There was a way out of this path through faith in Christ, but that's what they refused to accept. Have you ever seen someone stubbornly trying to do things the hard way, right? We joke a lot of times about, you know, men don't ask for directions. Men don't want to type in directions in their GPS, right? They sit there and they'll try to find something. They'll drive around and around and around and around, but they won't ask their wife who's sitting there right next to them on the phone saying, we just, we need to go here. You know, won't ask, right? Instead, they try to do it on their own. Well, that's what keeping the law is like. It's trying to do it the hard way, which isn't going to get a person there anyway, instead of doing it the easy way, the right way, the only way. And that's, and it's this only way that he's talking about here. In the next three verses, Paul shows us some examples from the Old Testament, revealing that the revelation of God doesn't need to be achieved or, or fetched by anyone. There is nothing that man can do to bring it about. It is all a work of what God has done. In verses 6 and 7, he's going to show us that the very idea of righteousness that comes from faith says what it doesn't say. And then verse 8, he'll show us what it does say. So look at verses 6 and 7 with me. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What we see here is that the principle that, that justification is by faith was set down long ago. And it's nothing new to the Jews. Moses proclaimed it from the book, or uh, from God in Deuteronomy. Paul is actually drawing on two different portions of the book of Deuteronomy with this quote here that he has. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 9, where he just says that first phrase, do not say in your heart. In that context, in Deuteronomy 9, it's in reference to reminding Israel that God is not giving their enemies into their hands because of their own righteousness, because of anything that they have done, because he says that they are a stubborn people. The Jews would have been familiar with this phrase. They would have understood what the context of it was, right? It's similar, using this phrase is similar to if I was to stand up here and say, for God so loved the world. Most, if not all of us here, would instantly be reminded of the rest of that verse, right? 
Just by saying that phrase, most, if not all of us, would also then go on, at least in our heads, to say that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So really, it's the same idea here. Paul doesn't elaborate on that part, because that would have been something familiar to his Jewish readers. But the second part of what he says here is actually quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And that's where we need to turn. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We haven't turned to too many passages today, so we'll... Got to get you with at least one here. In the first ten verses of Deuteronomy 30, there's another example of Israel being, being cursed and then being restored with blessings from God, much like we saw in Hosea and Isaiah in our last study. But just look at a portion of this, start in verse 9 of, of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Where it says, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book, in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So he tells them that all of this, he's talking about the restoration here, all this will be restored to him, to them. But what is the condition of their restoration? Well, there's obedience to the law, to God's revelation, right? The law was in effect at this point in time. But it goes even further than that. He says, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. This is the beginning of of acceptable obedience, right? Turning to God with your heart and soul. This is faith. Believing in Him. Trusting in Him. And this is what the Jews were called to do. Have faith in God in what He has revealed to them. But Moses goes on from there to talk about the law then. Verse 11, he says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. So what he is about to give them is at hand, right? It's God through Moses, giving them his word. It isn't out of reach for them because it's being given to them. The revelation that God has provided to them is right in front of them. And this is one of the privileges of Israel that we saw back at the beginning verses of Romans chapter 9, right? God had given them the promises, had given them the law, had given them his word. Look at verse 12 here. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. Now this is the passage that Paul quotes here that ties, ties into what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10. Moses is telling them that the law, what God had revealed to them at that time, isn't out there waiting to be found waiting for them to discover it, for them to go out and, and try to figure it out for themselves. God hasn't kept it locked up in heaven that someone would need to go up to heaven to find it, nor has he hidden it across the sea or the abyss, Paul uses in Romans 10, that a great journey needs to be undertaken to find it. The word of God has already been revealed to them. It was near to them. It was right there. They had all that they needed already because God was giving them his word. Now, how does this fit with Romans chapter 10? 
Well, he's talking about God's revelation to them. What had been given them in the law, but now at this time, what more has been revealed? We saw it back up in verse 4. The end of the law has been revealed. Christ is the end of the law. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the law, they're not opposed to one another. It's not an either-or type of system. They are both a part of God's plan. Jesus came to earth not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, revealed as the person that the shadow coming around the corner was indicating. He is what the law pointed to, was a tutor to, to lead man unto salvation, which is only found by faith in what God has revealed. Therefore, what Paul is showing here is that the concept is the same now as it was even back in Moses' day. We cannot reject the revelation that God has given. In verse 6, we have no need to bring Christ down because he's already come down. He came down to earth, fully God, fully man. What are the Jews still looking for today? What are they waiting for? The Christ, the Messiah, right? That's what they're expecting. Well, he's already come. They don't have to wait for him anymore. In verse 7, there's no need to go into the abyss. The abyss or the sea were used interchangeably at times in the Old Testament. He uses the word abyss here. We saw sea when we were in Deuteronomy 30. There's no need to go down or cross the sea or cross the abyss to try to find God's revelation. The meaning here from Paul being that Christ doesn't have to be raised. He's already been raised. He's already been taken care of as well. Notice the beginning of the quote in verse 6, that small phrase I mentioned before, do not say in your heart. The heart is where the focus of our faith lies. It is the tool that we use when we believe. Don't think that you have to find Christ, that you have to work in any way to earn Christ. There is absolutely nothing that we need to do to go and find him because he has already come. He has already been given. And that's his next point, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The knowledge of the gospel that Paul has been preaching throughout the book of Romans, the word of faith, that's what he's talking about there. It's right here. It's right in front of us. It was right in front of the Jews. The Jews were ready to accept the first revelation that God gave through the law, right? And they'd been, they'd been accepting that and they'd been keeping that for years or trying to keep that for years, but they then rejected the next thing that came, the revelation that the law was pointing to. They latched onto the shadow on the ground. They saw the shadow coming around the corner. They built an entire system of works around that shadow. But when Christ came around the corner, they were so busy with this that was on the ground that they rejected him. They refused to let go of the shadow. They rejected the knowledge that God was trying to hand them, refusing to take it. It was in their mouth and heart. Doesn't get much closer than that. Paul will expound upon the mouth and the heart in the next few verses. They are the tools that we have when it comes to salvation. The only tools we need to accomplish our responsibility when it comes to salvation. 
It's so sad that a people like the Jews have missed this opportunity. They so anxiously long for something that has already come. They are pursuing their own righteousness with zeal, but without true knowledge. It's like the guy trying to find his way without directions or using the GPS on his phone, right? He doesn't know where he's going. He's driving around, he's making good time, but he has no idea where he's going. But they aren't alone. There are many people out there that are searching for something, but they're searching aimlessly. They try to find it in different religions. They try to find it, you know, things that work best for them when the truth is right there in front of them. We as believers have the truth. It's what we have believed in. It's what we have put our faith in. And that's our job to be putting the truth right in front of everyone around us. So that all they have to do is take it, accept it, and believe it. And in the coming verses, which we'll look at in our next study, we'll see that that's our responsibility to them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for our time here together. We thank you for uh, this passage in Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to believe in that, to put our faith and trust in that. And as believers, those that have come to saving faith, pray, Lord, that you would make it a burden on our hearts to be presenting your word, your gospel, to those around us. There's nothing else that they need. There's nothing else that would fill any void that they might have in their life, Lord. Everything else is temporary. But the word that you have revealed, sending your son to die for them, to die for all of us, pray, Lord, that you would help us to be just sharing the word of truth with them, Lord, so that they might come to saving faith. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for our time here together. We pray that you would be with us now. As we go into the next hour, as we hear your word once again, we just pray for understanding. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to leave here today encouraged and refreshed and just ready to serve you and bring you honor with all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.